What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, a wide-ranging conversation with Carlisle co-founder David Rubenstein. I would think that the 25 basis point increase is more likely than not because inflation hasn't really gone down as much as they would like. Interest rates, the banking crisis, plus highlighting America's iconic history. I try to educate people about American history on the theory that if you have an informed citizenry, you have a better democracy. And a federal judge's decision on an abortion pill. CNBC's Meg Terrell with what it means for Big Pharma. It appears to mark the first time a judge has overturned an FDA approval of a medicine. But first, the other stories that got us squawking this morning, like military drills near Taiwan, the latest on FTX, Super Mario the movie, and mastering the masters. He is like ice, ice, ice in his veins. Yeah. It's Monday, April 10th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand under by in three, two, one, cue Andrew. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee. Becky is off today. We got a lot going on, though. You had a full three days. You should, be, you should be well rested, right? Extremely well rested. But I had a horrible Friday because there was no fast money, was there? Well, if you had to ask, then you know that there wasn't. Then you don't know that there wasn't, which is worse. No, but I may have been looking around for it and was unable to find it. And maybe, maybe it didn't show up on my DVR when I had it. When <laughs> yeah, I had it set. have a DVR. <laughs> I would set that out, of course. New details this morning uh, in the FTX bankruptcy saga. We now have the first report of the company's debtors. Image Javers joins us with more on that this morning. Yeah, good morning to you, Andrew. The new management of FTX says that it has recovered and secured in cold storage over $1.4 billion in digital assets and identified an additional $1.7 billion in digital assets that they, are, that they say they're in the process of recovering now. The first interim report from the new management paints a picture of a deeply dysfunctional FTX management that scrambled to keep up, uh, to come up with some corporate policies to convince an auditor that they even had corporate policies. And with such a lack of accountability that 56 entities within the FTX group didn't produce financial statements of any kind at all. Now, in a sign of how chaotic things were, the report cites an internal communication from then-CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, who said, We sometimes find $50 million of assets lying around that we lost track of. Such is life. The report also said thousands of deposit checks were collected from the FTX Group's offices due to the failure of personnel to deposit checks in the ordinary course. Instead, deposit checks collected like junk mail. And the report found that the firm lied about how secure its cryptocurrency was and had lax cybersecurity protections as well. And we expect to hear more about all of this at the next bankruptcy hearing. That's set for Wednesday 
in Delaware. Andrew, back over to you. It's a fascinating one, Eamon. If money were to come back, how long would you think it would really take? I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking months at least. I mean, the scale of this is so enormous, right? And trying to figure out where all this money is, and especially when you're talking about cold storage. I mean, that's physical devices that could be hidden, you know, in, in closets somewhere. It could be anywhere physically in the world. So the idea of accounting for all that is just an epic, you know, accounting problem. So that's first of all. Secondly, is figuring out where it all went. Uh, so they're trying to work through that right now. And you saw Sam Bankman-Fried last week pleading not guilty to the separate criminal process that's going along. He had he faced uh, an additional indictment last week. So uh, there's more to this story than just the accounting. There's the criminal side as well, and that makes it just very, very complicated. Amy Javers, thank you, sir. A developing story: the U.S. Navy says one of its missile destroyers carried out operations in the South China Sea earlier today. The move comes uh, coming after China's military carried out drills around Taiwan this weekend. And then earlier this hour, China's military said it had completed uh, various tasks around Taiwan. Interesting uh, perspective in a journal that, that the company or company, the country now sees itself as kind of a peacemaker. So that's at odds with the more bellicose stance towards Taiwan. You know, the she you know, they'd like to have everyone use their currency, I guess, in South America and went to, um, you know, buddy cozied up with uh, Putin and pre- pretends they have a peace plan, which but then nobody the in time, Ukraine would, would accept the peace plan. China U.S. Economy. companies are still doing business. Oh, yeah. Tesla yep. announcing the Shanghai factory for the mega battery. So it's Apple, Tim Cook over there. there. Yeah. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative uh, AOC. Can we, we just call her AOC at this point? She sent, they sent letters yesterday to 14 of the largest depositors with Silicon Valley Bank, a Bloomberg report saying the letter uh, seeks more information about the size of the deposits, the length of the relationships with the bank, and whether board members, executives, or investors receive special benefits. Among uh, the firms that receive the letters, BlockFi, Circle, Roblox, and Roku. So um, it's all heating up a little bit. I kind of like that. I just kind of like that. I, I think it's a good idea. Anna's going to tell us about Super Mario. I, I want to know about Super Mario. I want to know why. Do they write a really good, like it's two hours? Do they write a really good, I mean, I've raced with those guys. I like them. They seem raced funny. With those guys. I have. I've done the. Like vi- the video game. Yeah, I've done that. They seem kind of, they're cute. Is there a, what happens? Is there, do they, do they write a plot? I haven't seen the film, but the about, reviews are pretty great. I know. Do they write a plot? So here's what I think, though. That would be good on a big screen, right? That, that would get people into AMC. Yep. Wouldn't it? And there it is. The Super Mario Brothers movie had a blockbuster opening weekend, bringing in $146 million in North American ticket sales over three days. The animated film's a collaboration, of course, between Illumination, Nintendo, and Universal, owned by our parent company, Comcast. It's five-day global total reaching $377 million, the biggest opening weekend uh, for an animated title globally. And the film I want to see, by the way, also getting rave reviews, is Air, about Air Jordan. Oh. Um, and um, That's the not backstory animated. between Nike and um, how, that, how that's, those that's shoes those... came to be. $20 million over the weekend. It's, it's considered a film more for adults than kids done by Amazon, will likely end up on, on Amazon. I think they paid $90 million for the production, but it's being seen as a big win. And there's a fascinating column by Matt Bellany, who we've had on the broadcast a million times um, this morning, about the economics of 
is that a win? Is it not a win? How does that work? But it looks like a great movie. For those of us in, interested in the business of marketing, and it's, it's, it's a, Phil it's Knight a, played uh, know, by it's a Ben will, Affleck. It's a Goodwill Hunting reunion between those two. With Matt Boston Damon. guys. I don't know. I, it looks okay, I guess. I, I'm sort of, I'm just, I still want to know what the plot of Super Mario Brothers is and how it can be like two hours long. And Rich Greenfield on Friday said, or Thursday, that Universal has, has taken the mantle of, away from Disney for animated films. And this no, is, it's a very cool thing. Because of Illuminati or whatever it is? Illumination? Yep. Oh, yeah. That's Make different minions. than the, is that yes. different than the Illuminati? Different than the Illuminati. <laughs> okay. And John Rahm uh, won the Masters after a 30-hole marathon finish yesterday. Uh, the day began with him trailing by four, but they had to finish the third round earlier and ended with a victory over Brooks Kepka And Phil Mickelson, lefty, uh, made a late charge shot, 65. That was the lowest round I saw for the day. Uh, but he beat both those gentlemen uh, by four strokes. And it was, uh, everybody was thinking about another Spaniard that, that put that country on a map in golf, Seve Ballesteros. I think it was 40 years since he won uh, at the Masters. And when Sergio won in 2017, that was also like Seve's birthday or something. But yeah, it was a bunch of weird, like he's looking down uh, on this. He died really young from some horrible brain uh, tumor. Um, and, and now Spain, I think, has won, has more Masters champions than, uh, than most European countries at this point. Old, old Thabo won a couple, Sergio, John Rahm. He, he, I don't know whether you guys were watching, he's got two of the cutest little boys uh, I've ever, I don't know if they, we probably don't have that. There's Fred, uh, the, the chairman, but, um, and they were waiting for him. It's so cute. I mean, they look like cherubs. Really cute, you know, blonde hair. I think he went to Arizona or Arizona State or something. Uh, but uh, it was nice. It's, uh, it's something about uh, Augusta. He said he didn't think he was going to win till the. That gives me a little bit. He said he uh, didn't think he was going to win till his third shot on 18. It was up by four strokes, but he hit it in the woods on 18, and then put it up where he had to go over a bunker, and of course he put it like four feet and got par anyway. He is like ice, ice, ice in his veins. Yeah. Yeah, Kepka, not a great uh, round for him, although he's got five majors or something. Anyway, it was cool, though. Always brings out the, it's always drama at, at Augusta for some reason. Makes it great. Right. Did you see it's, it? No, Anybody? I didn't. It's nice to see the softer Bueller, side of Joe Cornyn. Bueller, it is? Yeah, it I'm is. I'm soft all you the know. time. Oh, that sounds bad. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Leave Let's it get out of here. Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod, digesting the March jobs report and the banking crisis with Carlisle co-founder and co-chairman David Rubenstein. Generally, I think the banking crisis is not as severe as what we had in 07-08. Plus, Rubenstein's latest project, highlighting America's icons. That's all right after this break. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. From a flat tire in the city 
through a dead battery on a distant drive. AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. If you missed our podcast and our broadcast on Friday, you missed the March jobs report. It was nothing too crazy. 236,000 jobs added in March, basically in line with expectations at the lowest monthly gain since the end of 2020. It suggests that the pace of hiring is slowing, a good thing for the Federal Reserve, which has been aggressively trying to tamp down inflation. The unemployment rate ticked down to 3.5%. This next interview covers that data and so much more. Here's Andrew. I want to get to our guest uh, this morning who's on set with us, uh, here to talk about the Fed, the banking crisis, so much more. He's got a new TV show as well, we'll talk about it in a moment. David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group. And among those projects uh, is a docuseries that's out a couple weeks still uh, on PBS. But let's, can we start with the Fed? I'm so curious, you saw the jobs number on Friday. It was, it was Easter weekend, so I think, I don't know how many people actually did see the jobs number, we hope a lot. Um, did you say to yourself, okay, things are actually better or worse than we thought, and therefore what, when you sort of intuit what Jay Powell has to do about it, where are you now? Well, it's clear that we, we have a, uh, an inability to get the unemployment rate as high as the Fed would like. Uh, the unemployment rate is 3.5%. I think the Fed would like it to be higher. They won't publicly say they want it to be 5 or 6%. Uh, but there's a tight labor market. And because the market is so tight, they can't get the unemployment rate as high as they would like. And that's a, a, big, a big problem for them. I would say a problem for everybody. Do so you think that they, Jay Powell says, I've got to keep putting my foot on the neck of uh, the economy, if you will? I think that when the May meeting comes up, I think it's likely to have a 25 basis point increase again. More likely than not, yes. And was that, that's not a surprise for you? Because, by the way, it seems like a surprise for the markets. Well, markets are sometimes wrong. Um, I would think that the 25 basis point increase is more likely than not because inflation hasn't really gone down as much as they would like. It's about 5.5% now, and they want to go to 2%. Right. We keep talking about the banks. Where are you on this crisis? Is this, is this a crisis? What does this look like to you? I think... People didn't anticipate something like uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and we were, un- we were surprised by it. Now I think the federal government has gotten its act together and pretty much solved the problem for the short period of time. You can always have a banking crisis. But is this a, a short-term solve? Meaning, is this a so- You remember back in 2007, there was BNP Paribas in the summer. Then we had Bear. Right. And there were these moments where it seemed like, okay, maybe things are okay. But it really wasn't solved. And I could argue to you that the implicit guarantee around deposits is sort of a temporary solve. But if you told me that four, five, six regional banks were going to go out of business over one weekend, by the way, that implicit guarantee may not be explicit anymore. Do you know what I mean? I understand. Clearly, the federal government is willing to more or less guarantee uh, deposits, but not creditors and shareholders. They're not going to help them out. And that's one of the problems they've had in solving some of the problems with the, let's say, First Republic Bank. There's a gigantic hole in its balance sheet, and anybody who wants to go and buy it needs protection from the federal government and the government is reluctant to provide that protection. Have you been looking at any of these banks? I have not personally been looking at any of them. 
but is Car- but Carlisle in well, the I don't want to talk about what Carlisle. I, I don't want to talk about what Carlisle is doing. I would just say that many people have looked at these banks, but I think the federal government would prefer to have a strategic buy these banks rather than a financial buyer. You think it's less morally hazardous if we imply that we're going to save depositors because it's an FDIC bank fund, or does it just give certain bank CEOs license to do things, I'm going to pay a higher interest rate and get these depositors, I don't have to worry because, they're in, because it's insured. It just seems like, it seems like a, not quite as bad as, as well, what we've done were, in the past, but I, it doesn't seem like, good, like a good if policy. If you were a regulator, what would you do? If you, if you had said you aren't going to protect depositors, you would have had it run on the bank that right. we wouldn't have uh, liked. Do you think that ultimately we need a more explicit policy around deposit protection? I think probably it'll have to be raised from 250 at some point, but even that isn't going to solve the problem because you really have people who have enormous right. amounts of money in and banks. you have well big above. businesses, small businesses that have enormous amounts of cash. So what do you do about that? Well, if I had the answer to that, I would be in Iowa, New Hampshire, and other thing, places. Strategic ambiguity. It. It's the same as our Taiwan policy. It, it will we'll guarantee, if it happens again, your depositors are safe, but we're not doing it for everybody. It's like, it, you know, sometimes it, it's incongruous. It's not. Government policy isn't as precise as you would like. It's just hard to make it as precise you as you like. say. Um, if you were making policy, what would you do? Um, I'm torn. I mean, remember we let Lehman go. It's like, let, just let it work and you the see politics, what happens. So there the are, things in, can happen if you don't. The politics in Washington right now is to uh, protect depositors and not protect right. creditors and You would agree that, without, that capitalism without downside is not capitalism? Well, yes, but I mean, capitalism is something you support, right? And capitalism I support it, has but a, I don't support it that... that Gains are, you know, the CEOs get to, you know, all their options kick in because they got the stock up. No, but when you lose, they, it's socialized. The, the, the no, Silicon, I don't agree the Silicon with that. Valley Bank CEO is out of a job. So it's not as if somebody who's a CEO of one of these banks I think they're going to be rewarded when the bank goes under because they've been doing risky things. He's out of a job now. When you think about the repercussions of this whole banking crisis, I mean, one obvious one is, is just a tightening of credit overall. But how do you think through... Um, the most acute impacts in the economy. A lot of people are pointing to commercial real estate. Morgan Stanley had this piece out about how there's a wall of maturities that are going to come due in the next couple of years. I think it's, uh, Jamie Dimon in his annual letter said that we're not out of the crisis, and I think he's right. Uh, there could be another uh, shoe to drop or so, but generally, I think the banking crisis is not as severe as what we had in 0708, and I think the federal government is very much on top of it. But it's clear there's some banks that can come along and, and cause problems. The smaller regional banks are probably the bigger problem than the, the big global banks. In 07, 08, we had problems with the largest banks. We, the largest banks now are not in How trouble. How hard is it for you to get a loan today? Not you personally, David Rubenstein, but in terms of you're looking at businesses, both the rate that you're get, getting, where you're getting the money from, and, and how's that conversation even changed over the last six weeks? Depends on what the loan is for. I mean, I think if you're looking for a home mortgage and you have some reasonable income, you're probably going to get your loan. But it's obviously a little no, no, bit. No, I'm saying private equity. You're, you're looking to buy a business. I mean, for private equity firms. Yeah, yeah. Big private equity firm. You're going to go buy some companies. Where are you going to, the loans are coming from different places today. Well, it used to be you went to the banks for the loans. Right. Now you often go to the private equity firms who have credit shops as well. Right. And so on a number of deals, you're seeing the private equity firms do all the, uh, the lending. Is that good or bad for the system? Well, I'm not going to say it's bad because uh, my firm has that business, and I think it's a pretty good business to be in. But there's no doubt that that part of the business is not regulated the same way that banks are regulated. So I suspect that if there's a problem there at some point, regulators will come in. But right now, there hasn't been a problem, and I don't see a big problem coming. How good is that business right now? 
as, as other traditional means of, of borrowing money shut down? And what is the rate that you're getting? Well, it depends on the credit and so forth, but uh, it's a good business to operate if you, you're the owner of it, in part because it's um, a business where you can manage a fair amount of dollars with fewer people than you can in the private equity business. Private equity business is very staff intensive. Right. And the private credit business, you don't have as many people, and therefore the margins are somewhat higher. But the truth is, if you talk to people who are going to go get a loan, they would prefer, they still prefer to get a loan from a bank than get a loan from a private equity firm for, for, the, for one major reason, which is if you're going to default on your loan, the bank is A, likely to give you more time to deal with it, and B, the, the bank doesn't want to actually own the asset. Whereas the private equity firm is very happy to take the asset off your hands. Well, private equity firms have been in this business for a while, really since the Great Recession. And it's been a pretty good business for private equity firms. There haven't been big problems yet. There could always be problems. Right. But right now, the business is pretty well managed, I think. From a shadow banking perspective, you said there's no regulation. There's really very little but regulation. Modest regulation. Do you think there should be? And if there was, what do you think it... What, what is the issue you, you worry about? I... I'm not saying the federal government uh, should go in and regulate it, because I think right now there's not a big problem. I think right. the, the business is working pretty well, and the federal government isn't really needed to come in and help this business right now. Uh, we also don't have deposits from small depositors that we have to worry about, whereas the banks have that problem. So I think right now the business is working pretty well, but we haven't been through a stress test like a great recession, where you see how those, those businesses uh, operate during a great recession. Right. Where do you keep your cash? I'm sorry? Where do you keep your cash? Do you keep it in a big bank? Does, and does, does Carlisle keep it in a big bank? Does it keep it in a small bank? Does it keep it in money market funds? And has well, that changed over many, the last six we weeks? We have many accounts over across many, many different banks. And, and uh, you know, we have large banks, medium banks. We have lots of different sources. We have a lot of cash right. to put in, in various banks. Um, before we uh, started the segment, we, we mentioned you have a big docu-series coming out on PBS. Tell us about it. I have a series that's eight-part series on uh, iconic America. It's about eight iconic American symbols, and it's designed to educate people about our history a bit. So, for example, Fenway Park, uh, the oldest ballpark in the major leagues, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Hollywood sign, the American Cowboy, the American Bald Eagle, um, Stone Mountain. Uh, things like that. And it's an hour in each one of these. It's designed to educate people about the, the uh, history of these symbols of our country and to kind of helpfully, hopefully get people to read more about these things and learn more about American history. This is part of a long-term thing you've been doing in terms of donating a lot of money to some of the monuments and other things around the country. That's right. I try to educate people about American history and the theory that if you have an informed citizenry, you have a better democracy. That's the whole premise of our democracy. You have an informed citizenry. Sometimes our citizenry is not as informed as it should be. Tread lightly on some of those, I would say. It's not the same docuseries you could do 10, 15 years ago, I don't think. It's different because uh, today, um, your docuseries are, are probably, they show the good and the bad more than they maybe did many years ago. This shows the the, the downside of certain things. For example, take Stone Mountain. That's what I was going to say. I'm Stone surprised Mountain, you even said that. Hard to believe this is true, but uh, we've carved into the wall into the wall of Stone Mountain, which is an Atlanta area, uh, the Confederate uh, generals and uh, leaders, Robert E. Lee, for example. And who went to dedicate it? The Vice President of the United States in 1972, Spiro Agnew, went to dedicate these symbols to the Confederacy. And you know, you can say, why were we doing that? Why were we? Uh, you know, uh, praising uh, slavery and praising the generals that fought for it. David Rubenstein, we're looking forward to it. PBS. Thank we'll you. Check it April 26th, the first one on Fenway Park. Which is your favorite, can you say? I have three children, and I love them all the same, and I love all you of have these. You eight episodes. Eight. Okay. Okay. Loves all. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, David. 
Coming up on Squawk Pod, a federal judge overturning FDA approval for an abortion pill. And pharmaceutical companies are asking what it means for them. CNBC's Meg Terrell reports. This is a very political issue. It's really that question of do big companies want to be involved in these political fights, even if, as many say, the stakes are really high. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Melissa Lee. Becky uh, is off today. Pharma companies, they're starting to get worried about the potential fallout from a federal judge overturning FDA approval of a pill used for medication abortions. Uh, Meg Terrell joins us this morning on what this could mean for other FDA-approved drugs. Good morning. Good morning, Andrew. I was talking with a lot of people in the industry about this over the weekend because it appears to mark the first time a judge has overturned an FDA approval of a medicine. 200, more than 200 biotech executives wrote a letter over the weekend uh, warning, quote, that if courts can overturn drug approvals without regard for science or evidence or for the complexity required to fully vent the safety and efficacy of new drugs, any medicine is at risk of the same outcome of mifepristone. I was speaking with one of the authors of that letter, Jeremy Levin, the CEO of Ovid Therapeutics. He warns, quote, unless this can be rolled back, this represents one of the greatest threats to drug approvals in the last 50 years. Specifically, legal experts are pointing to products like vaccines or contraception as being particularly vulnerable uh, to sorts of political pressures like this. Uh, but the Secretary of Health and Human Services over the weekend even said things like the new Alzheimer's drugs could potentially be at risk if somebody wanted to bring this to a sympathetic federal judge. Now, the FDA has said that it has appealed, saying, quote, FDA stands behind its determination that mifepristone safe and effective under its approved conditions of use for medical termination of early pregnancy and believes patients should have access to FDA-approved medications that FDA is determined to be safe and effective for their intended uses. Guys, who we haven't heard from over the weekend or this morning yet is Pharma. That's the lobbying group for for large pharmaceutical companies. We haven't heard from large companies. It's really mainly the smaller biotechs out here on this. And that's because this is a very political issue. We know that they are sort of weighing how to get involved here, if to get involved, and we may see action this week, but uh, they've been slow to get involved. It's really that question of do big companies wanna be involved in these political fights, even if, as many say, the stakes are really high, uh, even more broadly than what this is focused on. Guys. Meg, what does this mean also for companies that have, in various insurance programs for their employees that get access to this stuff? Well, it's unclear right now because we have these two conflicting decisions from two different federal judges. And so as of this moment, you know, the expectation is the FDA can't really do anything. It kind of has to enforce uh, enforcement discretion here and, and sort of do nothing as it waits for more legal clarity. The expectation is this goes to the Supreme Court and then we'll see how that court decides. Um, as for implications for, you know, health insurance coverage and things like that, I think those are all things that will get worked out on the line. So, Meg, I, I didn't look at the, the ruling itself, but is there a safety issue that, that was cited? What, what was the rationale exactly? Is it just, is it an anti-abortion well, rationale? The, is that all it is? 
It appears to be an anti-abortion rationale, okay. certainly, if you look at the language in the decision. Um, you know, he does bring so the up fil the pill issues safe of and it, safety, yeah. but, you know, experts would argue that those are not legitimate issues of safety. Oh, okay. All right. Just wondered. All right, Meg, thanks. Meg Terrell. You here tomorrow? Yep. See you tomorrow. Look at that smile. smile on look her at, face. That's a so true, happy to be it's here. a true smile. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening this Monday morning. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. Turn on your notifications so you never miss an episode. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Now we are clear. Thanks, guys. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 